and welcome to Positive Mental Attitude, a podcast about the positive aspects of mental health. I'm Juliette Burton. I'm a comedian, a speaker, a writer, normally in the reverse order, and I'm also a mental health advocate, uh, which doesn't mean that I'm advocating mental health conditions. I'm, I'm actually just, I, I have mental health conditions and um, I, I, I kind of found ways of coping um, and have been in therapy for well over half my life. Um, and yes, I have received medals um, for services to psychiatry. Uh, no, I haven't. I wish I did because I like jewellery. Um, do get in touch with me if you'd like to uh, be uh, mentioned on this podcast. Um, this lovely little episode is actually a best of. Um, we wanted to give you some of the um, outtakes and the best bits of all of our lovely podcast episodes. Um, and it's coming to the end of the year. I wanted to help show you some of the hidden bits, uh, the bits that you might not have heard of before um, from all of our lovely guests so far. We've had Johnny Benjamin, Adam Pearson, Lost Voice Guy, Emily Reynolds, Sophie Hagen. Um, oh gosh, we've had um, Rachel Kelly, uh, Laura Lex as well. All these incredible people um, and more to come. So here are some of the best bits of the Positive Mental Attitude podcast. How do you deal with the pressure to perform? Because a lot of people who have depression have jobs that require them to a certain extent to perform, Um, maybe even to their colleagues or their boss, or uh, some people just have to pretend to be fine even if they're not on the inside. So how how do you manage that with the the performance Laura versus real Laura? I love performance Laura. I really trust her to be brilliant. I love having a prepared thing to fall back on. So a lot of the comedy I do is sort of messed about with the audience and improvised and I make it up as I'm going along. But I always know that I've got killer material to fall back on if I need it. When I really hit rock bottom with the generalised anxiety disorder and the climate change obsession, performing and being asleep were the only times I felt good because performing used that cognitive layer like dreaming where you're not thinking day-to-day thoughts you're thinking a whole smorgasbord of performance thoughts and it was such a great escape and I think I will always feel like that about performing because I just love performing and I I am good at it and I don't let people down when I'm performing and then Actually, I talked about it in this year's show about how embarrassing the gap can be for a performer between who they are in their perceived life and who they actually are and how you how you cope with that in the real world. Like, for me, there's no difficulty to perform. There's a difficulty to exist outside performance, Yeah, <laughs> not the other way around. For me, it's like I, I spend uh, most of the year gathering my thoughts and creating an hour where I know how what I'm going to say mm. and I'm sink or swim, I will always swim yeah. in that environment, whereas yeah. away from that environment... <laughs> No idea. Yeah. Um. What do you find it's uh, like freelancing with mental health conditions? Because being working in comedy is a freelancing self-employment kind of situation. Oh. Do you wish that you had an HR person that you could chat to? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not offering myself up because I've got the blind leading the blind. But um, yeah, I think so. I've I've thought this a lot recently. I think you know when you watch um 
like a nineties family comedy, and the the dad has a high powered job, <laughs> and it interrupts family meals, and he misses recitals and all the stuff because he can't stop lawyering, and you know that's a bad thing because lawyering shouldn't come between you and your family, and comedy seeps into every second. Yeah of every part of your life and nobody calls you out on it because you work in the arts, darling, and that's just what you've got to do to get ahead. And so your family, your friends, you, your boss, your world, your agent, everybody is an enabler in turning you into the bad dad from the 90s film. Yeah. I answer my phone mid-meal with Tom. I answer my phone mid-everything. I miss everything so what's the payoff? What's the what's the, the, the good the good side of this, the, the 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 sacrifice that you're making? Well, I can't really do anything else because I love this. I really believe it'll settle down. I don't think it'll be like this forever. This kind of launch pad bit that you think takes two years takes fourteen. <laughs> um so I do believe that there'll be a day where I have an HR person who takes care of this and to be fair you know it isn't just me doing it there's a wonderful I've got a wonderful agent but I suppose I mean the the thing that I always find with the coupling of mental health and working in the arts is firstly you meet you meet a lot of like-minded people <laughs> so that's why we're having this conversation so you meet people who are drawn to the arts because it's it's a way of surviving the mm. the tumultuous world that we inhabit if you have a mind that can take you to a darker place and also that it it kind of hones certain aspects of my personality that perhaps I wouldn't have honed because I'm so passionate about working in the arts and making people laugh that I have to build up my resilience and my resourcefulness yeah. and 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 I have to be the person that I the superhero that you kind of need to be sometimes yeah. because you love it so much I I totally I think I had a proper, full-on corporate job before I was a comedian. Not for very long, for a couple of years. And I hated every second of it. I really hated it. But on paper, that that life suits me so much better than this one. I crave stability and company and I hate uncertainty. My therapist <laughs> described me as having an allergy to uncertainty. So... Um, I'm I ha I don't have OCD, but I have very obsessive behaviours over checking travel plans, travel times, checking messages, checking I've got things very clear, prepping everything, um, to the point where you know if I if I have to book a train somewhere, I will do my research a week before, decide roughly what I'm going to do. And then I will book that train and probably check what time that train leaves between 10 and 30 times the day before to check what time it goes because I can't be late. And I've had to really work on that with my therapist who has said things like, you know, why don't you just next time rock up to the train station and just get on the next train that's going? And I think you're crazier than I am. Nobody works like you can't live like that but some people do because some people don't have this obsession with letting people down that I'm scared of so having a lifestyle where I go to work at the same time every day finish at the same time every day get the same train every day don't have to factor in unknown elements like traffic or 
last-minute gig pulls or money changing or money not coming in. That is a beautiful idea. But I haven't done it and I wasn't happy when I was doing it. So something about the arts and this nonsense is better despite it being the absolute antithesis of everything that my anxious brain wants me to have. Something about the adrenaline is better. And I know from an outsider's perspective, it might be like, well, obviously it's better. It's showbiz, it's glitzy, it's this, it's that. It actually isn't. Very little about my career. I've done one television appearance um, and that was up at the Fringe this year. Genuinely hand on heart, 99% of my career is is upstairs rooms of pubs and small comedy chains. It isn't, it isn't the outside view of comedy. It is finding the cheapest parking you can to make a gig that paid £130 and was 240 miles away from my house, profitable, minus the hotel and and food that day. That That is honestly most of this job, and yet something about that appeals more. Even if you told me I was never going to go any further in comedy than I am right now, I would stay here. And I don't know what that is, because like you say, it's not even... It's not even that I feel like when I'm on stage, I'm surrounded by people. I think I still feel on my own there, but I am comfortable in that loneliness. Whereas feeling like the outsider in an office where I have no right to feel like that outsider would be worse. I often feel that if I if I had a... I used to work in, in an office and have that routine and... Um, I found like there was too much space around my own thoughts. Um, so I had to fill that space with with the damaging thoughts. Yeah. Whereas with this creative career where every day is completely different and there's super stressful situations, but I have more to occupy my mind. Yeah. Um, and there's always, if nothing else, creativity. There's there's always the option to write new material. Yeah. Um, so do you think that mental health is funny? I know it sounds a bit aggressive and I know that we both do material about mental health. So hopefully the answer is yes. But but I'm finding that there's there's a lot of people out there who are doing more and more material about about mental illness. Have we reached a kind of a, a peak of the amount of comedians who are going to be doing this sort of material? Um, I think it is really funny. Yeah. Because... The very basis of jokes is people not doing the thing that's expected of them in a situation. That's slipping on a banana skin is funny because it's interrupted walking forward. Um, pull back and reveal is you thought it was going one way, the joke takes you the other way. And that's what mental illness is. It's It's expecting to behave one way and it doesn't. I think... There has been a lot of exploration of things like living with anxiety, exploring sadness and things like that through comedy recently, particularly in people's solo shows and specials and things. I think the route now for comedy to go down is to get into the uncomfortable parts of it as well. I think we've done the surface work on anxiety and being nervous about travel plans and panic attacks and things that are very accessible I think the next route is to go yep 
loads of us identify with that and a few of us will identify with this and it doesn't make us a special class of people. I think in the same way that race has been explored a lot more recently into incredibly uncomfortable areas for people to really expose prejudices and and how people are people despite every label that they get shoved onto them, I think that there is more uncomfortableness to exercise with mental health. How about audiences? Do you find that audiences are generally very mental health savvy? Or do you still have to dispel some myths? One of the things I really struggled with with audiences this year was not being sad in front of them whilst talking about sad things and having them feel comfortable with that. So my show is very upbeat and yet I would be stood there smilingly talking about the worst parts of my depression and I was hand-holding them and going, it's okay that I'm okay about this. And so I have a joke in the show where I talk about naming my depression because I didn't get the kid I got the depression instead. I started to treat it like it was a child. And I talk about naming my depression after where it was conceived. And I gave it the name Inside Every Silence. And audiences at that point clammed up pretty much every day, except for the people that got what I meant, who would kill themselves laughing, usually about three in any audience, would just really go, oh, it is in the silences. That's where the thoughts creep in. That's where it's born. And the rest of the audience would go, oh, I don't think she's all right. <laughs> she's, look at her painting that smile on and trying to be brave, but she must be broken on the inside. And I'd have to go, yeah, I am broken. That's why I'm talking about it. But it doesn't mean I have to put on a broken hat and stand in front of you weeping out of one eye being broken about it all the time. It's absolutely fine that this is how I feel sometimes, but right now I know what I'm doing and don't you dare feel sorry for me. Right, so I actually am very excited speaking to you because I have had experience of hallucinations myself. Okay, yeah. And I very rarely meet anybody yeah. else who has had those experiences. So yeah. when when did you said you first experienced seeing things that other people weren't seeing or mm. hearing things that other people weren't hearing when you were as young as four or five? Mm. Did that is that something that was consistent in your life or No, it's weird. So <laughs> my very first experiences uh, relate to uh, Roald Dahl's The BFG. I, I mean, I didn't know that then, but I know that now. So when I was three, four, um, a family friend of ours bought VHS, VHS uh, video cassette of The BFG, of Roald Dahl's The BFG. Do you remember there was an animated version yeah, of The BFG? I loved it. Did you? Or... Yeah, with Sophie with the red hair. Yeah, yeah, and... yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Um, so a family friend bought that for me. I think it was one Christmas, it's and I watched it. Scary. It was. It really. It, it scared the life out of me. Um, and after I saw that film, uh, I didn't I didn't sleep properly. And then I began to see what I thought was the BFG. I began to see uh, hooded figures, I remember. I began to hear things that weren't there. Um, always at night, uh, people breaking into the house. And um, this is why my parents took me to see a child psychologist, because I stopped going to bed, basically, because I was too scared. So you weren't sleeping at that time? I wasn't sleeping, no. Uh, it was awful. But yeah, that, those are my early kind of, I guess, sort of hallucinations, I'd call them. But when I was um, 10, that's when... So when I was 10, I started to hear what I thought was the voice of an angel. So that's when kind of the 
auditory sort of hallucination started. But <laughs> I just thought that this was um, normal and this was something that everyone had. I thought, yeah, we just all had a sort of voice character that we carried around with us. And I, I liked uh, because I come from a Jewish background and um, I was really kind of influenced by my faith. I was, I was into my faith. And I thought this was great. I was, I was, I was sort of. I had an angel that was that was with me, that was talking to me, and it was it was great. But it changed in my mid-teens when that voice changed into more of a sinister voice. It began to sort of command me to do things, um, and I then fell into this pattern of having to do things uh, in threes. I'd have to do things in threes. So the voice would say. Usually, it was actually I'd have to say things three times certain things it would say um if you don't say this i'm going to punish you or if you don't touch this three times i'm going i'm going to do something to you your family and that's when it became really really tough to live with really tough but i felt i had to do the things it was telling me to do or i would be punished yeah but i didn't talk about it i because I, I i was scared i thought having seen one floor of the cuckoo's nest you know i thought oh well, if i say what's going on i'm going to be locked up i kept it to myself but then i I fell into a kind of a, a kind of real psychosis um, when I was uh, in university and I believed that I was being possessed. I literally felt like there was something inside of me that was sort of controlling me and I went onto the streets and I was screaming, shouting. I thought the devil was inside of me and I was speaking words that... Um, it's so it's so strange because to this day, like it's not my words. You know what I mean? It's like I someone, do know what you yeah. mean. I, I will tell you about why I know yeah. what you mean in a bit. Carrying on. Though. No, it just when I look back and I'm I can place myself back there. I was on a ugh, I was in the middle of a dual carriageway, um, screaming and shouting these these phrases, and it's 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 so strange because they're not. It's not me. It's it's not my. I would never come up with those words. Me today, sitting here as the person that I am now, do you know what I mean? I would never. It's, it's, it, it still feels like it was, yeah, it wasn't me. It was kind of a, just a very strange experience and, and not a nice experience, a very, a very difficult experience. What's, um, what sense do you make of it now when you look back on it? Um, do you, I've got so, so many things I want to, mm. I want to contribute to the conversation, but um, I, I'm wondering when you tell yourself, when you look back at that, what, what, what narrative do you tell yourself of that? Well, when I look back now, and I've been psychotic again, you know, I can see it's 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 the brain. It's there's something in my mind that's that's happened that's that's triggered this. And and actually, last time I was psychotic was was last year, um, and that was due to uh, a lot of stress. And again, when I I think the psychosis is always triggered by stress, and and so I make sense of it in that way. Actually, not just stress, insomnia. Insomnia is a big. It's a big thing as well. I think the two of them combined. Actually, there's another drink, too much drink and alcohol, because that really, yeah, yeah, it's the, yeah, not good for me. But yeah, I think particularly the stress and the insomnia. I know. I mean, within just a few days, it's quite, it's quite scary when I think about it. You know, in just a few days, it can really flip. You know, if I if I stop sleeping properly, uh, if if the stress builds up, things can turn. Yeah, pretty 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 quickly, and I can go into. So the last time I was psychotic, I was. I was um, I was on the Truman Show. I, I I had the Truman delusion growing up, where I thought I was on the Truman Show. And last year, when I was psychotic, I went back into it, and it was so scary because I was convinced I was again. I was on the streets shouting, you know, you're not real, you're not real. I'm in this TV show, get me out. And again, it, looking back, it's 
I I see it as you know something in in the brain in the mind. It just it all becomes too much. It's it's too overwhelming. And yeah, uh, my therapist says um, you know it's not your fault. It's, it's it's actually a natural reaction to kind of this massive buildup of stress. And actually, you're trying to sort of escape. So the Truman thing is being on the Truman Show. You know, growing up was my like sort of escape from from the real world. And he says you know you go back into that because that's. That's your escape. You're trying to make sense of it. You know, you're... Uh, you're it's a survival mechanism. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, my So when I when I was sectioned, mm. because it was so such a heightened stress, my body weight was sure. so low, that my, my brain just said, no, I'm not having any of this. I'm, I'm out of here. I'm checking yeah. out because I couldn't cope with the amount of stress. And uh, I, I saw... Yeah, I... I I, I thought that the devil was um, penetrating me. Sure. Um, and I thought that the shadows in the room, like out of Ghost, um, like, you know, the, the film Ghost, yeah. where the shadows were coming to life and pinning yeah, me down. Sure. And, and um, there was a point where I was like singing, singing operatically at 3 a.m. in the morning because wow. I was convinced that the higher I sung, the closer to God I would wow. get. And being a good uh, Church of England girl, (laughs) that seemed to have made sense to me. And I remember at the time thinking, this is absolutely, this is making, this is perfect sense. Why is everyone around me lying to me about Mm. why these things aren't, Mm. aren't real or aren't happening? And I saw, I saw um, nice things. There were nice experiences within those hallucinations, like, um, like a woman who was sat next to me, next to my bed, was reading from the Bible. And she was this lovely big black lady and just so calming and so mm. warm and so loving mm. and I got so agitated and angry when I I was asking the other nurses where was where's the black nurse because yeah, I really wanted sure. to chat to her she was she was reading Gosh. from the bible I re- can she come back and they were like no no she's there was no one here there's no one here mm. nowadays I I from what I've the little I've read and I could read more that's just my general <laughs> note for life yeah, uh, too. <laughs> but I I understand that I've heard that that delusions whether they're whether they're from dementia or from psychosis, the best way for somebody outside of those that experience to um, to help that person mm. through it is to help them not not heighten their anxiety or heighten their yeah. stress yeah. by saying no. This is this absolutely is it. this is it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, last time I was psychotic last year, I was with someone that was kind of. Instead of saying, no, 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 this isn't happening, it's not there. It was like, okay, okay, that's all right. So just really sort of trying to be calming and, mm. and gentle and patient. I think that's key as well is the patience because um, it's easy to get frustrated with the individual and say, oh, no, it's not happening and it's not there and this is all in your head. But just, just if you can be patient with that person and just hold the space, you know, as you would for any anything else, any other sort of um, health concern health issue you would you would hold the space for that person let that person be you know what I mean do you think that that advice of patients holding the space can apply for all mental health conditions whether depression or um, anorexia or yeah I think well this is just me but I I do I really do think so because uh, I've been in hospital a a few times and um, I I mean I don't want I'm not not trying to criticize but you know I just so often, um, when you talk to clinicians or nurses, I mean, it's, it's behind a kind of a, a clipboard, and you know, it's like on a scale of one to ten, you know, how are you? And it just, I just wish sometimes that they put the clipboard down and just kind of, just really, you know, really just focus on you and and 
as well, instead of saying, you know, have you got this or this or, or instead of putting almost words in your mouth, actually just let that person be and let that person talk. And it can take some time. It can really take some time. And again, I've been in hospitals where time is, 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 is really lacking. And I've seen, you know, uh, clinicians get frustrated, impatient, you know, come on, just t- tell me or uh, come, come, come on, let's let's. Yeah, I find that a, a shame because it's so hard to, 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 it's so hard. I think whatever mental health struggle it is, it's, it's hard to open up and to, to talk about your thoughts, your feelings. I mean, especially in this kind of for the British society that we live in, the kind of stiff upper lip, we're not used to, you know, we've got walls, we've got all these walls that we've built up over the years mm-hmm. to suddenly like be able to just sit down and just come out with it all is so tough. It's so, almost, almost seen as impolite to be too emotional. Exactly, exactly, exactly. There's hopefully somebody out there listening who doesn't know what it is they're going through or mm. has recently been diagnosed and they don't know that it will end, that there, yeah. will, there will come a point that they'll feel differently. Like for, um, have you found that it's something that you that you have learnt how to manage? Do you or, or yeah. are you cured? No, I mean, I mean, I, I suppose the way I think of it is that you know it's an illness. Okay, it is an illness. If something goes wrong with your brain, like something might go wrong with your liver or your kidney that's okay lots of people have to cope with illnesses people cope with diabetes certain types they learn to manage it so for me the way I see it is right I'm going to learn to manage this as best I can I've got this thing called depression anxiety this tendency and I'm going to come up with strategies and ways of learning to live with it and in a way for me that was a real light bulb moment because it's very empowering to actually take some agency myself. And in a way, seeing how people manage physical illnesses was very inspiring because it was almost like, okay, you know, you know, so many people have issues, physical and mental. Welcome to the world. You know, a lot of people have to learn to manage things. And, and, I, and I, I think sometimes the drug-based approach and once you get into the healthcare system and all respect to incredible work psychiatrists do and you know, when you're suicidal, don't tell me that you're not going to go to hospital and you're not going to take the drugs. You just are. It's just, you know, people debate antidepressants. Like, you're going to take the pills, I promise you. Yeah. If you if, if it's between topping yourself and taking the pills, you're going to take the pills. Yes. You, it's just sometimes I find the debate really crazy. We're talking about serious depression here. So all of that I completely get. But as I did begin to get a bit better, part of the recovery was also taking agency and beginning to think that I wasn't just dependent on going to see the psychiatrist, you know, my GP, my my medication. I could begin to pull in some other strategies. And I was really excited. I think there was some nice guidance. I think it was earlier this year that said that, you know, if you are on medication and loads of us are um, and, you know, maybe forever or may not be. And that's a whole nother debate. Um, at the moment, I'm not. Um, I'm learning to manage things without it. But what I liked about the NICE guidance, it said, whatever the, whatever your situation, if you're taking medication, you should also be doing all these other things. Yes. And the medication is more effective when you do. And, and that was very much my experience. And that was a bit of a turning point with sort of sense of it's not either or. You know, I'm still under the care of doctors. I've got to, you know, I, I get, have checkups with, a, with, with, with the medical profession, of course. But alongside, I can pull in some other strategies. For me, I always think of it as like a, a Batman's utility belt. That yeah, I like that. You yeah. have you have different things at your disposal. Um, yeah, and I've I've 
been to so many different therapies and there's yeah. CBT in there that I've learned some stuff from cognitive behavioral therapy. There's, yeah. there's always the option of um, I can go to the doctor and say, I think yeah. I need to be put on some kind of medication right now. And there's different medications. There's uh, there's psychotherapy. There's uh, reading. Uh, Bibliotherapy. Mi- yeah. mi- mindfulness. Yeah. You know, all the things that I, I've collected, even going for a massage or going for a walk or. Completely. These, completely. these are all things that you can use. And it's up to me. And sometimes I will purposefully not use any of them. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> but that then I have I, there will be a point that that that's that not using that utility belt not using those things at my disposal will mean that I I'm not able to cope I'm not managing well yeah so with with we're focusing on solutions yeah in this podcast medication is one solution yeah absolutely I, and I'd never to anybody listening I'd, I'd I'd never say you know rule it out and, and and if you are on medication a lot of people would like to come off it again always that's something for a doctor that's not you know wouldn't be my Speciality, you've got to be very, very careful around medication. But, but exactly as you're saying, you see, I my experience of having been quote a kind of like a patient for so long, or somebody, you know, who wants to try out like you, like trying out all these different things. So I think what tends to happen is that for good reasons, people are very messianic about different approaches. So the medical profession is quite um, obviously keen on a drugs based approach because that's their expertise. Blah blah blah. So they'll go medication you know mindfulness fantastic i use elements of it again sometimes the mindfulness lobby can be like you know mindfulness you're sorted and 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 that's not been my experience my experience is more like you it much more a sort of smorgasbord pick and choose things keep changing the stressors keep changing your age changes your hormones changes you may need different things that you're you know along your mental health journey but you're you're in charge everybody's mental health is so subtle and different and the stresses they're under is so subtle and different that I, I would always say you know um, I can share what, what's helped me like you know some of the nutritional approaches are really interesting at the moment mm. and again the nutritionists and the doctors in that field would say you know if you need enough omega-3s and healthy fats or, or some of the different ideas there you know you're sorted again for me pick and choose, you know, pull together your own toolbox and everybody's is different. If someone was listening to this and they were preparing themselves to go see a doctor for the first time to talk about their mental health, what advice would you give them about that? Because it's quite scary. You've got 10 minutes with the doctor nowadays. You know, they're so busy. How do you how do you approach that? How, How if you could do it again, because I know it took me a really long time. It took me to the point where my my physical I'd really struggled with anorexia for a really long time. Yeah. To then to then go talk to the doctor and say this this is what this this is. Yeah. Um, it took somebody else taking me and saying you your your life is now in danger. Gosh. Um, yeah. And if I'd look if I'd look back and nowadays I, I realise that I think I was struggling with anor- uh, with anxiety disorder and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder many many years before I even struggled yeah. with with. Well, food food was sort of a part of that for me. Well, if you're going to see a doctor, you know, how can you make the most of that of that, as you say, that eight minute encounter? So I think the first thing you have to do is is keep a record and keep a notebook um, and just be very orderly about it. So, I mean, if you want to sort of know ahead um, how a doctor would be looking at you, um, you can look at the Beck inventory system, which you probably know. So it's kind of 20 rough questions that people use in a, in a, still an amazingly kind of primitive way of diagnosing if you have 
suffering from from a mental health condition, particularly anxiety and depression, is the is the Beck score. But that would be things like tracking your mood, uh, you know, from from taking pleasure in things to taking no pleasure in things. It would be things like tracking your sleep. But be, to be orderly, like, you know, you went to bed at this time, you know, you got this number of hours sleep, um, tracking your diet, like whether you're able to, you know, um, eat. So keeping a very regular uh, diary for at least two weeks. I mean, I think the, the usual rule is that if you're suffering from more than six or seven of these kinds of symptoms across insomnia, nutrition, diet, um, mood, for more than two weeks, at that point, you should be booking an appointment with your GP. But your GP will be able to be uh, much more effective and proactive in what's the right diagnosis if you have a really good checklist um, looking at those things. So as I say, prioritising mood, sleep, food, um, those would be probably the three that I would have a, have a checklist. What made you want to go into acting? Oh, wow. Um, I didn't. I I was at work. Um, I was casting a very well-known Channel 4 series where we may or may not send disabled people on dates. And um, I got an email from Changing Faces, who are the, the UK's largest charity that helps support people with facial disfigurement and visible difference, saying, hey, this song can't have been in touch. They're looking for a man. I'm a man with a facial disfigurement. I have a facial disfigurement age 30 to 40, because oh. I was like 26 at the time, with like gardening experience. And I was like, oh no, that's nowhere near what I am. But I still sent an email, got to be in it to win it, all that jazz, let's, let's have some fun. And you could, I, I sent off an email going, hey, heard about this, I'm interested, let's chat. I could have literally counted to 10 and my mobile phone went. And the the casting director, um, who I still talk to, Carleen, like wonderful woman, very very good at her job. Um, we had a chat and she went, "No, you sound quite good. Could you send us a, a little paragraph about yourself?" And I didn't have time, so, so I sent my CV. And my my CV is very very media. In the um at the top, kind of Adam Pearson address, phone number, um vitals. And then my personal statement and the opening line at the time of my personal statement on my CV is, my name's Adam Pearson. I'm the best in the world at what I do. <laughs> and then and then nothing about what I do. Not like no kind of extrapolation. Just here are the cold, hard facts as they exist. And then they called back like a few days later. I went, yeah, our director's quite taken. Could you put a little clip of yourself on YouTube so we can see how you look, talk and move? So I uploaded a very blunt, sarcastic YouTube clip. I think I make fun of my current employer, uh, star signs, cat owners, and then, a, and then my best friend's dog just appears in my arms out of nowhere and slowly looks round like it's in The Exorcist or something. And I was just like, awesome, this will get rid of them, send. And heard nothing for two weeks. And then um, I got asked to go and meet the director for a coffee. Um, at, do you know the American church on Tottenham Court Road? Uh, I probably have walked past it many times. We, we, we went to meet there because it was bang opposite where I was working at the time. And um, I got hit by a car on Tottenham Court Road and broke my leg. And I properly broke it. Knee pointing one way, foot pointing the other way. And then adrenaline kicked in. I called the director 
and um, was like, hey, funny story, just been hit by a car, I think my leg's broke, I'm still really keen, don't think I'm not keen, or that I'm flogging you off, good sir, I'm just going to be about 10 minutes late, and then hung up the phone, called my mum, just like, hey, been hit by a cab, it was always going to happen, I'll see you in UCL in about an hour and a half, and hung up, by this point, I'm surrounded by like paramedics, people have come out of work, um, one of my colleagues was just like, do you need someone to come to the hospital with you? And I was like, no, I'm all right. And she, she was like, really? Because I'm supposed to be going to Pilates with my best friend, but I really don't want to go. Can I please come to the hospital with you? Fine, get in. And then um, the director then signs me. At this point, I'm under a black cab in just my pants, surrounded by paramedics, high as giraffe tail on morphine. And apparently the, the clincher was when he went, um, bloody hell, Adam, I didn't realise you did your own stunts. <laughs> to which I apparently replied, I don't know, morphine. Do I look like I've got a <clears throat> stunt double? <laughs> Very good. So uh, that's that's how I got into, into acting. And that was for a film called Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson? It was. I got to work with um, Miss Johansson. And uh, you got to hang out with her, kiss her? Do things with her? Uh, we so the, the, we didn't have a kissing scene, but there there is a nude scene and there is like a touching a touching scene. A touching um, scene, touching yeah. emotionally as well. Yes, as indeed. Wonderful. Indeed. And uh, recently, you've been in the news um, after being overlooked for the role of John Merrick, um, aka the, the Elephant, Elephant Man, Man, in a new BBC adaptation, which instead cast a non-disabled actor, which caused much controversy. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Because that is um that's a, this is new information. This is this is super new. This has been the last week of my life. It's mm. it's been joyous and infuriating all at the same time because the internet is a thing. So let for the record, this is just one example of how very often um the TV and film industry um use quips up able-bodied actors as a crutch rather than hiring and going out and finding good disabled actors of which there are hundreds and this is very much the um 2018 version of blacking up and and did, did, did i want the role probably not well i'd like to have at least got on a phone call or an audition probably and if they didn't audition me they probably didn't audition anyone. Because if you type in actor, elephant man, BBC, London, I'm the, I'm the first, well, I was the, now it's Charlie Heaton, for God's sake. But I used to be the first thing that came up. And it's, it's just a, a little bit lazy, in my opinion. Well, I mean, I went on a date not that long ago and he said that it was off-putting were his words that I had uh, self-harm scars. What? And I was like, I was like, mm, probably, I'm probably not the girl for you then, to be honest. Um, um, I, 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 I'm shocked. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's the story of who you are. Yeah, like, exactly. That reminds you of your strength and your resilience. Yeah, and I was just like... I you're 30 years old. How are you still holding this opinion? You know, it was. I was really surprised. It was kind of, you know, when you're so taken aback, you're like, I don't know what to say. Yes, I, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, uh, yeah, I've had, I've had dates um, where they, they have kind of either directly or indirectly uh, said the mental health thing, mental health conditions puts them off. Mm. Uh, oh, you're too, you're too um, confusing. I'm like, well, 
think of all the people out there who are undiagnosed that you're meeting who might not yeah. know that they have a condition. And, and I've got um, lots of loose skin as mm-hmm. well from uh, having been a size 20 and a size 4 due to compulsive overeating and anorexia. And uh, I've often thought about having th- that loose skin um, cut off. Mm. But I, I never have done because there are moments when... There's lots of moments when I'm looking at it and I'm not entirely in love with it. But mm-hmm. there's other moments when I look at it and I'm like, wow, I've, I've, I've been through some stuff. Yeah. Oh, I kind of, they're kind of beautiful. Yeah, I was going to say it's beautiful, I think. It yeah. is. Those, yeah, especially when you're on holiday and you're kind of looking at all these other people. And it's like, actually, all of these scars that we've all got, they are they are the map of our of our story. Um, and if only we could just slightly change our perspective. Yeah. Um, now, addiction as well, because you mentioned drinking there. Um, and for me, my self-harm, like I, when I was younger, I, I did... I pinched myself quite a lot and mm. I would dig my my um, nails in quite a lot or scratch myself. Um, and for a while I used to pick up rocks and kind of scratch myself when I was very young. But I think that that all fed into, pun intended, mm. um, my eating disorders because yeah. eating disorders are a way of self-harming. Yeah, of course. Um, is that same the same for you with, with uh, is, was it alcohol that was yeah, the main addiction? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Um, I've also had issues with food, basically just a smorgasbord of... Yeah. <laughs> Another food pun. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Um, yes, basically, yeah. It was... Um, uh, yeah. Any any substance? Essentially, yeah. Pretty much anything. Food, self-harm. Like, I've been, I've done binge eating and starved myself, over-exercise, drugs, drinking, self-harm, basically. Tried everything to cope with what was going on, really. But the positive, I mean, there must there are positives, um, I think. And for me, one of the biggest positives when it comes to self harm is um, you're still here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you. That, I mean, it's it's it. People need. I would love it if people could uh, get their heads around the fact that self harm just means that you 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 found a creative way, mm. not advocating it at all. Um, but if you if you do it, there's no there's no shame in having been through that. Mm. Um, and if you if you found better, more healthy, not better, healthier ways to cope with that emotional distress, then what an amazing, resilient yeah. person you Agreed. are. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. So rethink mental illness. Um, who we both know very well. We do. Um, we they they are in case you don't know who rethink mental illness is dearest listener uh rethink mental illness is a leading charity provider of mental health services in england uh, they support tens of thousands of people through support groups services and advice and information uh, they also train employees employers and members of the public on how best to support someone affected by mental illness and all of this work guides their campaigning for the rights of people with mental illness and their careers uh, so please do check out rethink mental illnesses uh, website um, if you need support uh, for all of your conditions um, or if you're worried about your own or somebody else's mental health uh, go see your GP in the first instance that's Rethink Mental Illness's uh, suggestion uh, but they also do offer advice and information th- and uh, free fact sheets uh, at rethink.org and a helpline uh, and you can call them on 03005000927 no matter how I'm saying that telephone number right. it doesn't sound <laughs> right uh, lines are open Monday to Friday 9.30am to 4pm excluding bank holidays and you can also email advice at rethink.org and if you need 24-7 emotional support uh, they recommend that you call Samaritans on 116123 that's easier to say that one (laughs) much easier Uh, or you can email joe at samaritans.org and that's all for the UK and Ireland Um, they have very kindly uh, suggested uh, that um, 
that they've given us some information about um, self-harm. So they have said self-harm means that you harm yourself on purpose. Uh, self-harm isn't a mental health problem, but it is often linked to mental distress. It is common to self-harm in secret, and you may do this because you feel as though your thoughts and feelings are not acceptable to other people. Self-harm can be both distressing for you and your loved ones. This is because they may not be able to understand why you're self-harming. Uh, people self-harm in different ways, such as the following. Cutting, burning, scolding with hot water, banging or scratching your body, sticking sharp objects into your body, eating or drinking things that are poisonous, not letting wounds heal, taking too many tablets, uh, misusing prescribed or illegal drugs or alcohol, over-exercising, starving yourself, um, and other ways as well. Self-harm is more common in young people with depression and anxiety, but it does affect adults without a mental health problem too. Um, so yes, I mean, even, even reading that, it reminds me that, um, with, when I, when I cook sometimes, because I get very anxious when I'm cooking, um, I sometimes bang into things or, or, uh, or burn myself and I don't think it's on purpose, but mm. it's, it's also, I wonder sometimes whether it's a subconscious way of coping yeah. with the anxiety I think it can manifest in loads of different ways I think and it took me a really long time so obviously on that list there were things like over exercising um, mm -hmm. drinking abusing prescription drugs and things like that um, I didn't realise until kind of embarrassingly recently considering how much I think and talk and write about mental health um, how those things can be kind of an iteration of self-harm it took me a really long time to realise Oh, even in maybe relationships, there were things that I was doing that were kind of harming me, that were kind of masochistic, self-harming kind of behaviours that I hadn't really linked. Um, what sort of things? Um, I guess things like you would have risky sex or you would have a relationship with someone that was inappropriate or um, who wasn't nice to you, you know, kind of getting involved in abusive situations. I think uh, kind of any kind of self-destructive behaviour, you know, you know someone's not good for you, but, you, you know, you stick with them. I think for some people that can be kind of an iteration of, of self-harm or kind of you know, self-disgust. This is one of the first times I really talk about the OCD because I think I felt like mine wasn't bad enough. Oh God, that's, you know, because yeah. I know, I know people who, you know, who are <clears throat> completely unable to really do anything in life because of their OCD, and mine is fairly. Um, it's it's not consistent. It happens when I'm under a, a lot of pressure and it's <laughs> it's weirdly privileged in terms that part of it is I can't um I need it's kind of like hoarding but I'm also very into decluttering so it's a weird one where I I have 20 shampoos because what if I run out you know I have 20 like face wipes because what if what if I suddenly I have 30 white t-shirts because what if? Yeah, and I can't not have that. I, I just I, it's just absolutely impossible for me not to have a stock of everything. Because what if? And um, then I sometimes get these decluttering kind of. I mean, I've had to apologize to my housemates so many times because I've like I've threw out all your food. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it was slightly expired. So it just, I just couldn't live. I couldn't exist if I didn't throw out your food. Please let me know if you need any of it back because then I'll just buy you a new one. Yeah. And loads of it. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I so I, I've been through phases with my OCD where 
it was about pattern and routine and I ha- all the towels had to be facing the same way um, that I had to do the same routine every single day at exactly the same time. And that was the most, the, the, the worst. But as a child, even, there'd be little things like having my socks pulled at a certain angle um, that I now look back on and go, that was that was emotional distress sort of communicated um, in a very real way. Uh, and now, nowadays with my OCD, it's... Um, it, it, I laugh at it quite a lot because it's just it'll just have a little flag up in my head of a, a little oh my god oh my god panic 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 there's there's something going like this there'll be a around housework where I'll either have to clean everything and and then I suddenly see mess and when there isn't mess or I'll be super lazy and just be like well this is for my, the benefit of my mental health <laughs> I'm not going to clean anything. I'm going to live in a pigsty because it's the, it's going to be beneficial for my mental health. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, according to Rethink, um, means that you will have obsessions, compulsions, or both if you have OCD. That's <laughs> just in the t- clues in title. Um, <laughs> an obsession is an unwelcome thought or image that you keep thinking about and is largely out of your control. These can be difficult to ignore. Um, these thoughts can be disturbing, which can make you feel distressed and anxious. A compulsion is something that you think about or do repeat repeatedly uh, to relieve anxiety. This can be hidden or it can be obvious. Uh, it could be saying a phrase in your head to calm yourself or checking that the front door is locked. You might believe that something bad will happen if you do not do these things. Uh, You may realise that your thinking and behaviour is not logical but still find it very difficult to stop. Uh, There are different types of OCD which include contamination. Tick over there, Sophie. (laughs) uh, Which is a need to clean and wash because something or someone is contaminated. Checking. The constant need to check yourself or your environment to prevent damage, fire, leaks or harm. Intrusive thoughts. This is definitely one for me. Is that one Mm, for you? So these are thoughts which are repetitive and upsetting and horrific. Um, hoarding, not feeling able to throw away useless or worn out items. That is me, <laughs> to a T. Uh, does that that sound ring, yeah. ring true? When I when I got the diagnosis, I I had this huge brown leather couch in my room that was left there from a former housemate, and I had I had it for like a year, and then I woke up one morning and I just thought, oh maybe it's time to get rid of it. I should probably get I should probably get rid of the couch. It's a bit big and it's in the way. I don't really use it. And then like two hours passed and I put it on Gumtree. Two hours passed, I started calling people, do you want a, do you want a couch for free? Uh, by 10 p.m. I was full on staring at the couch. Like, you, it, has to, it has to get out of my house. I need this couch. It ha- I have to get, I cannot, I can't breathe as long as it's, and I put it into the hallway, a tiny, tiny, tiny hallway. So that it blocked, like you couldn't get into the kitchen or into the bathroom. I just put it up against the wall. I was like, it, and, he's, and I ended up calling my friend and I said, or I texted my friend and I said, I know that this is absolutely weird, but I've just called a moving company that said that they would pick it up at 6 a.m. tomorrow for a thousand pounds. And I said that that wasn't soon enough and I would pay more if they came now. And I don't think that's normal. I don't think that's a good thing to do because I don't have that amount of money. Would you mind coming by? I know it's 1 a.m. Would you mind coming by and carrying this couch out of my house? And for some reason he said yes, and he came and helped me carry this couch out of my house, and we just illegally just left it in the street because I didn't know, it I just didn't know what to do. And the second it came out of my house, I was like, oh my God, yes, thank God it's out of my house. I can, 
I can breathe again. And I told my therapist and she was like, oh, so when, when were you diagnosed with OCD? And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? She was like, oh, you didn't know. Oh, and that's how I found out. And speaking of fantastic interviewees, next up, I chat to Lost Voice Guy, or rather I asked Lost Voice Guy some questions. Now, um, you might know Lost Voice Guy. He won Britain's Got Talent this year. I know him as Lee Ridley. Um, He and I have been friends for uh, many years now. We've performed together as part of um, disabled comedians lineups, and I'm token mental health girl, and Lee has cerebral palsy. And Lee, therefore, has lost his voice. Uh, This is something that he talks about in his comedy. And I wanted to ask him more about how mental health and disability, physical disability, are related because uh, mental health is now also recognised as a disability if it has a long-term effect on your life. And Lee and I have a lot in common and there are differences as well. Um, And I wanted to ask him how fame in particular had affected his mental health and how he's uh, found solace and help from people around him, uh, not only with his own physical disability, but also with his mental well-being. Here's Lee, a.k.a. Lost Voice Guy. Hello, my name is Lee Ridley, but you probably know me better as the stand-up comedian, Lost Voice Guy. I'm the Geordie without the accent. I was disabled before it was popular, and I recently won a little program called Britain's Got Talent. And I know the lovely Juliet Burton from the comedy circuit. Yes, I have a disability called cerebral palsy. It affects different people in different ways. But, in my case, it meant that I lost my speech, I walk very funny, and my right side of my body is weaker than my result. As a result, I use a communication aid to speak with. That's what you are hearing now. Basically, I type in what I want it to say, and it speaks it for me. And I realize that I sound like a posh version of Robocop. I haven't been diagnosed with any mental health conditions actually, I do spot traits of several of them in my day-to-day life. For example, OCD and bipolar disorder. But, obviously without a medical opinion, I'm very wary about saying that I have something when I might not have. It's quite interesting being on the comedy circuit because I think many comedians have some sort of mental health condition. So it's nice to be able to see it from that perspective. Because I know so many people who suffer from bad mental health, I think it helps me to understand it better. I certainly hope so anyway. Whereas, I don't think the general public are quite at that stage yet. It's still a bit taboo to talk about mental health in day-to-day life. That's a shame, because it really helps to talk about stuff. But, on the whole, I think we have a better understanding of it than we used to. Obviously winning the show has meant that I'm in the public eye a lot more than I used to be. For example, people recognize me everywhere I go now, and I have a lot more followers on social media and stuff. That's been quite hard to cope with at times. Mainly because I don't have the same amount of time to just switch off and relax anymore. I'm always writing my book, or booking gigs, or replying to emails and stuff. Straight after I won the show, 
I was drowning in notifications and it did get a bit too much. I couldn't really find any time to myself, and that affected my sleeping patterns as well. I think I'm starting to get a bit more used to it now though. It's definitely balancing itself out. I'm also lucky to have great family and friends who have looked after me amazingly well too. I think my family and friends have looked after me mostly. And they haven't done anything in particular. They've just kept an eye on me and stuff. Those are the type of people that you want around you, because they instantly know when something is wrong, and they can do something about it before it gets too bad. I think physical health and mental health are definitely linked. For example, I sometimes get depressed that my body can't do everything I want it to do. So, that's my physical health affecting my mental health. Having a disability certainly affects how I see myself as well. I think it's quite hard to be a confident disabled person when we live in a society that judges us so much. I think joking about my condition helps me cope a lot. I've always seen the funny side of my disability and I think that's been very important to me. If I didn't laugh about it, I'd most certainly cry. I also think I joke about my disability as a defense mechanism. As long as I'm laughing at myself, it means that no one else can laugh at me first. In that way, I think that comedy is a very powerful tool. There you go. What an episode. Uh, please do get in touch with me and tell me what your positive solutions are. Uh, what helps you with your mental health conditions? Uh, what helps your friends? What helps you with your mental well-being generally? And what have you learned about yourself and the world thanks to your mental health conditions? Uh, get in touch with me at Juliet Burton um, on Twitter. Uh, it's Juliet Burton Writer Performer on Facebook and Juliet underscore Burton on Instagram. And you can also find me at www.juliette.com burton.co.uk remember j-u-l-i-e-t-t-e-b-u-r-t-o-n it's almost as if i've said those letters before in my life thank you so much for listening and until the very next episode stay positive